All right. Good morning. We are so happy to see you today. We're going to be reading from Genesis 35. I wanted to share a, a message that I'm calling a prophetic message with you today before we begin our new series on uh, David, um, which will begin right after RT is with us next week. Uh, thank you so much for receiving um, the uh, voices of our associates during the past few weeks as travel and other things have kind of jumbled our schedule a little bit, but uh, I am <clears throat> glad to be back to begin um, at least moving into our normal procedure the way we normally go. I can't wait to get caught up with some things that are on my heart. I want to talk to you today about the idea of when God changes your name. When God changes your name. Now, there are some instances in the Bible that we kind of make a name change bigger than it really is. You know, Saul was changed to Paul, but that, that's just a linguistic, a, a Hebrew name versus a Greek name. There wasn't a great theological pattern there. But when you look at people like Abraham, he was changed from exalted father to father of nations. Or you look at the nickname of Simon, who was just a little stone, but would become a big rock. It was significant of something huge. And sometimes we see that the name change is kind of mundane and just housekeeping. But whenever we come into those experiences, when God says, I'm going to do something so profound in your life that your old name won't do anymore, that's when we get excited. Now, we're going to find a story like that in regard to Jacob, one of the patriarchs of Israel. Um, I've, I've decided I'm going to adopt a new term so I don't have to keep explaining myself. You remember when Paul was trying to tell about his thorn in the flesh? He said, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. He kept saying that. In other words, he was saying, I don't know if this was a dream. I don't know if this was a vision. I don't know if this was real. And there are times I don't know if something's a dream or a vision. There are times I'm not sure what to call it. So I'm adopting a new phrase called prophetic experience. And what that means is I'm not sure what it was, but uh, I, it, it was a, a, a supernatural encounter. And guys, I want to tell you, we need to, to learn to use um, phrases like the Lord told me very carefully. We need to be careful when we use things like the Lord showed me because there's so much being propagated as the Lord showed me or the Lord said to me that the prophetic word that is real and genuine really begins to lose credibility. And those that are cessationists, those that don't believe God still does that today, um, they, barbs are coming out like I haven't seen them in decades. So we need to be sure that uh, we use those phrases very carefully. But a few weeks ago, let's pray. Father, Help me, I know these folks will do fine, but help me to stay on track and to stay targeted today and help us to understand of what happens when you change our name. Help us to learn what we need to learn and we give you praise in the name of the Lord. Amen. <clears throat> I was in prayer and I had this prophetic experience that I'm talking to you about. Now, those of you that have been with us for the past 25 years, you know that a theme here has been going from Sears to Dillard's. Uh, 
And we thought about changing that because Sears isn't there anymore. But going from Belks to Dillard's just doesn't have the same ring to it. Uh, and what that was about, for those of you that may be new to the church, I explained that God showed me how the years were going to pan out. And at the time, I began to talk about going from Sears to Dillard's. It was a time when all of our children were little, uh, three preschoolers, one elementary school student. And our weekly, uh, one of our weekly celebrations was to go to the mall and just walk. You get out of the house, it was inexpensive. And generally, every one of the kids liked it. You know, it's hard when you've got a lot of kids to find something that everybody likes to do. Now, they liked to do it because they knew that if they just walked long enough, they'd find a store they wanted to go into. And I talked about how much of a challenge it was to start at Deers and, uh, Sears and try to get to Dillard's and then back again because everybody was moving at a different speed. And that kind of became an analogy. Everybody had different interests. And it kind of became an analogy for a church that is growing. You have different speeds, you have different interests, you have old folks, you have young folks, you have people that are so super spiritual that nobody can keep up with them. You've got folks that are so unspiritual that nobody wants to linger behind and drag them. It's, it's a job to get from Sears to Dillard's. Well, a few weeks ago, I had this vision in which um, I was praying to the Lord about several things and the Lord spoke to me something that I did not fully understand and I had a prophetic experience. We had traveled the length of the mall and we're about to make the last turn. We're about to make the last turn and we would have covered the entire mall and the Lord spoke to me and I said, Lord, what is your word for the final stretch? And the Lord said, there is a division in the house. And I want to tell you, my first impulse was that the church was split or that there was sin in the camp. That's the kind of language we use. And I said, Lord, I don't understand. I don't, I don't see what you're telling me exists. And I stood up on a rock. Now, where a rock came from in the middle of the mall, I don't know. But God likes to mess up with things in dreams, you know. And uh, I stood up on the rock and I said, a division of the house, because there was a huge crowd. We were all moving together. We were primed, ready to go down that last hallway. And I looked back and there was about a third of the church that was behind, substantially behind. And I could tell that was the division of the house. But what I also understood is that we were not separated as though there was a division of good versus evil, or there was a division of right versus wrong, God said there are some that have not kept up. And I knew that was always a danger. And the Lord, uh, I said, Lord, what do I do? He said, there is a division of the house. I'm not warning you about a division that can come. I'm telling you the house is divided now. And for success in the last stretch, You've got to pull the house together. So I did what I only, the only thing I knew to do, I stood up on the rock and I looked as far back as I could to the back of that crowd. And I could see they were people that I loved. They were people that loved God. There were people that are workers in the church. And I said, this way, this way, this way. 
And slowly but surely, they would begin to drop things that had slowed them down. They would begin to take off a garment that did not fit the occasion. And they would begin to come. And the Lord said, I'm going to teach my people to not allow the house to be divided. You say, well, explain to us what it meant. Well, it took me a few days of prayer before I began to understand because when a pastor hears the word division, his mind runs down a certain path. And it's never pretty. It's never good. It's always frightening. But sometimes, I want to tell you, are you with me this morning? Sometimes division is not about rebellion. Sometimes division is about distraction. Sometimes division is about not going all the way. I see this in an example in Genesis 35. To understand what's going on in Genesis 35, you've got to understand something about the journey that Jacob has been on, especially since chapter 32. Now, Jacob... <clears throat> I preached a series on Jacob maybe, I don't know, three years ago, and we talked about Jacob. His name means trickster. Uh, his name, and, and, it, and it's not always like a deceiving trickster. It's just somebody that's just looking for a way to make it easier. It was said that one of the things that made Henry Ford uh, a millionaire early in the days of his car production is that when he would ship the parts of his uh, model uh, of his T-modeled cars, or Model A, I forget which one, but when he would ship the parts, he would put them in a crate made of boards that had been pre-cut to be other parts in the car. You know, you would, he would, you'd take off the, the side paneling of, of the crate to discover that you've just taken off the running boards. In other words, he was just saying, you know, I'm going to find any way I can to make another buck to make this a little bit easier. That can be very good and wise. It can be very foolish and costly, especially when we do it in the spirit. Jacob was like that. He was a man that understood the grace of God upon his life. Esau and Jacob. Jacob have I loved. Esau have I hated. Why in the world did God say that? I read the story of these two men. I think I'd have liked Esau a lot better than Jacob. I'd have gone to the football game with Esau long before I'd have gone with Jacob. Jacob's the kind of guy, you know, when you got up to the, to the concession stand, he'd have alligator arms, you know. Just couldn't, couldn't find why I left my wallet in the seat, you know. But Esau was gregarious. And I, I tell you, I want Esau. But God saw something that doesn't always show up. And it was this. Esau, though he was the fun guy, even though he was the party guy, Esau did not have a regard for the things of God. He was called profane. Jacob, by the other hand, even though he was a trickster and a manipulator, always looking for the easy way out. Let me tell you this about Jacob. At the end of the day, he always gravitated back to God. He's frustrating. He was the kind of church member that would give, you know, the pastor an ulcer. You know he's going to show up when he needs to show up, but you're going to worry about him till he gets there. And he has an encounter. And let me tell you this, loved ones. We will either have the encounter I'm speaking of on our own 
we will run to it. It'll either happen early in our lives or God will keep hammering away until he brings you to the place where you have to make that decision. He had lived his adult life making deals. He had lived his adult life playing games. He had lived his adult life manipulating the system and God backed him into a corner so that he was playing games with somebody that was a bigger game player than he was. His name was Laban. And now he's a grandpa. Now he's a grandpa and he's going back home. God says, Jacob, you're going back home. And Jacob terrified that his father-in-law is going to come after him and kill him and take his wives and his children away from him and his grandchildren away from him. He's terrified. And so he sets out under the darkness of night. He comes to a place called Jabbok. It was a brook. And he realizes that now the Lord has spared me from my father-in-law. That's another story. And if I can just keep winning little battles, maybe I can make it back home. But he hears his brother Esau is coming and he puts together this elaborate plan. I'll send this gift. I'll send that gift. I'll buy him off. Loved ones, it is a horrific way to live the Christian life. It's a terrible way to live the Christian life. The, the, the tension it puts us under when we, when we live our whole Christian life making deals. Buying off God, sidestepping accountability and judgment. But I want to tell you, that's where I've, I've come to believe that's where most Christians live. We'll do as little as we can to really get from Sears to Dillard's. Now, we want to go that way, and we're going to get there, but we're going to go at our own speed. We're going to go at our own style. We're going to go on our own terms. And he wrestles with God Almighty himself back in chapter 32. Now, that's a, that's a story of great mystery, and it's a sermon unto itself. I, I put the reference in your notes for you, but we're not going to go over it today. And finally, it is resolved when the Lord himself says, Jacob, stop wrestling, let me go. But Jacob manifests his spiritual tendency. I will not let you go until you bless me. Now, that was both a noble thing and an ignoble thing. He should have never been in the situation where he had to wrestle with God over these issues. But at least he had enough spirituality to say, I probably shouldn't be in this fight to begin with, but I'm going to stay in this fight until you hear me. And, you know, you've got an image of this angel of the Lord saying, let me go. Like, I'm at your mercy. And he says, no. And so what does the angel of the Lord do? Oh, you say, well, he, 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 uh, he remembered his Krav Maga manual and pulled some special moves. No, he just decided, okay, this is enough. And he touches Jacob's hip. And Jacob, hit, Jacob never walks naturally again the rest of his life. Listen to me, loved ones. The greatest day of your life and your walk with God will not be the day you get slain in the spirit, will not be the day you have this unusual revelation necessarily. The greatest day in your walk with God is when you come to the place where you're so dependent on him that you never walk the same again. Too many of us keep walking the same path. I watched a movie 
or, or I saw the end of a movie, I should say, back in the 80s. I don't recommend the movie. I, it, was, it was probably a trashy movie. I think it was rated R. I, I don't know, so please don't send me an email saying, I, on your recommendation, I went and checked out this movie. It was trash. I don't know what was in the movie. I, I'm not recommending it. I saw the end of it. But it was a movie. Uh, Burt Reynolds was in it. I think the name of it was The End. He's a, it's a, and you might not want to say, yeah, I, 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 just, I just don't know. I don't know. But in this movie, Burt Reynolds is diagnosed with terminal illness. And the movie, as I, as I understand it, is he has spent his time <clears throat> trying to find the best way to commit suicide because he doesn't want to end a horrible death with cancer. <clears throat> and as I remember it, I mean, this was back before I was even married, so it's been a long time. I may have some of the details wrong, but he decides he's going to swim out into the ocean. Nothing has ever worked. He's going to just swim out to the ocean till he's at the point of exhaustion. He can't swim back. He will drown. That will be his suicide. And he starts this conversation with God as he's swimming out. And he talks about, you know, wants to end his life. But on the way out, he comes to the conclusion. He goes underwater to die. And then you see him erupt through the water. And he says something like this. I want to live. He says, okay, God you got to help me back. And he starts making a deal with God. He says, God, I'll start tithing 10%. And he works his way up to 80%. And, he, and he's struggling. God, get me back. I'll give you 80%. And he says, God, I'm talking gross. I'm talking gross. And then it begins to be obvious he's going to make it. And he cuts it down to 70, to 60, to 50, to 40 and when he finally feels his feet touch the sand, he said, I'm not giving you anything, God. After all, it was you that made me sick. And I remember that was supposed to be funny, but it really got a hold of me. And I think that's what happens so many times in the church of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have encounters like Jacob did. We wrestle with the Lord. We're touched and we can never walk the same again. But as soon as the moment is over, we begin a slow pacing back to where we were before. And I'm praying for the hand of the Holy Spirit to touch us. In chapter 32, God said, you have prevailed with man and with God. I'm changing your name from Jacob, which means trickster who does it my way. His, your way to Israel, which means prince with God, who does it God's way. Well, he says, great. God delivers him first from his father-in-law, then from Esau. And he goes out a little bit further. He comes to a place called Shechem and he builds an altar there. And it was an altar to celebrate what God had done. But here's the pattern, loved ones. Here's the pattern that I believe God showed me. We come to a point of crisis. Maybe it's financial, maybe it's physical, maybe it's relational, maybe it's any number of things. And we build an altar at Shechem to say, God helped me. God blessed me. But then we start living life as though the encounter never happened. We still sign our papers Jacob instead of Israel. 
We still live the same way we did before, but now we've got a trophy we put up on the mantle that says, God help me at this at Jabbok and at Shechem, I'm saying, thanks God. But you know what God is doing? God keeps working in the life of Jacob until he brings him to another place. And he says, go back to Bethel, settle there, build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and all that were with him, get rid of your foreign gods you have with you. Purify yourselves, change your clothes. Come, let us go up to Bethel where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I've gone. They gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and rings in their ears. And Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. You see, uh, let, me, let me stay on track. Then they set out and the terror of God fell on all the towns around them so that no one pursued them. Loved ones, sometimes the reason we have a victory and then find ourselves right back in the same trouble again is that we've settled for Shechem instead of Bethel. We've, we've settled on tipping our hat to God, building an altar, saying, thank you, Lord, for what you did. But we keep on living the same way. When he was on his way to Shechem, they still had their idols. They still had everything that had contaminated them. But now he's moving to the place where for the first time in his life, the first time in his life, he's saying, I'm not going to live a divided life. I'm not going to hold back just in case. I'm going to lay it all out here. And whenever you make that kind of commitment to God, let me tell you what happens. The terror of God falls upon you in the spiritual realm. Uh, terror of God, your enemy's terror of you falls upon them in the spiritual realm. No one pursued them. Jacob and all the people with him came to Bethel in the land of Canaan. Verse 7, there he built an altar and he called the place El Bethel because it was there that God revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. Going way back to decades earlier when God put his hand upon Jacob's life in a way he could understand. God said, this isn't about the victory I gave you a few months ago. This is about the eternal purposes for your life. Loved ones, your, your victory in your business recently is not what God saved you for. That resolution with your child is not what God saved you for. That salvaging of your marriage is not what God saved you for. And if you think it is, then you and I will go from nothing except victory to victory to victory to Favor to favor to favor, but we will never discover the purpose of God for our life. You've got to go back to Bethel. You've got to go back to where God put his hand on you. <coughs> now, Rebecca's nurse died and was buried under the oak tree. And um, verse 9, after Jacob returned from Padan Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him and said, Your name is Jacob. You will no longer be called Jacob. You say, well, God's already said that. But listen to me, loved ones. It doesn't matter what God told you if you don't walk it out. The promise you received doesn't matter until you begin to walk it out. The name change God gives you does not begin until you begin to walk it out. 
Your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. And then he said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you and kings will be among your descendants. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I also give to you. And I will give this land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him at the place where he had talked with him. Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him. And he poured out a drink offering on it. And he poured oil on it. And Jacob called the place where God had talked with him Bethel. Loved ones, this is as simple as I know how to say it. I know we are not saved by, by works. We don't stay saved by works. We will go to heaven not because we have excelled in the Christian life. We will go to heaven because of the grace of the Lord Jesus that saved us. But the quality of your life here and the reward that you will receive in heaven is directly and inextricably linked to how well you live out the Christian life. I'm not trying to scare you saying you better straighten up or God will send you to hell. And boy, you better know it's hot and it ain't half full. If Jesus is in your heart, hell's off the table. I believe that. But the question is, how will you be received? How will you live in the next realm? What will your reward be? And here's the central truth. Our lives, and we Pentecostals are the worst. We, we, we fuss about people that don't believe in the miraculous and call them cessationists. And, and we say they don't believe, they don't embrace the power of the Holy Spirit. And I do not want to be a cessationist in any way, shape, or form. But I want to tell you, we have our own brand of cessationism, even in our churches where we believe in the empowering presence of God. And what we do is we put all of our eggs in the basket of encounters. We will take time off from work to come to a service where we think we will have an encounter. We will drive across three states to have an encounter. We will be unfaithful to our own church to go to a gathering where there is an encounter. But what we have done is we have done nothing more than make the encounters our target, make the encounters our stopping point. And we don't know anything about pressing through to what those encounters were all about. We must walk out what God shows us during those encounters. You know, I, I, I get upset when people say, well, I just don't feel like I'm being discipled in my church. Well, it's, it's, I guarantee you from my 40 years of pastoral experience, about 80 to 85% of the time, if you don't feel you're being discipled, it's because you're not pursuing the discipleship that is before you. I tell you, the church of Jesus Christ is not nearly as defunct as people think it is. There are disciples being made. There are good works being done. There's the work of the kingdom being built up. But what happens is when we don't get a grip on what encounters are about, we end up never satisfied. We end up never satisfied. Moses had the most incredible counters, encounters imaginable. He went into the mountain and he had such incredible encounters that his, the countenance of his face was changed. But hear me, loved ones. 
Moses didn't come back down from the mountain and say, well, if I had a better crowd to work with, your face would be glowing too. He came down and he said, I've had this encounter and there's one thing that needs to be done. I need to build what God showed me in the mountain. I have to build what God showed me in the mountain. Loved ones, that is by far the, the single most divisive and the single most destructive thing that is working in charismatic and Pentecostal churches today is we have made an idol of the encounter. We have pointed the fingers at those that haven't been with us to the encounter. And we have set ourselves up as judge, jury, and executioner and somehow think that we're walking in a higher anointing because of our encounters. But I want to ask you, what have you built from that encounter? What has resulted? Have you, has your reputation changed because of that encounter? Has your ministry changed because of that encounter? <coughs> Say, Pastor, you're getting a little, getting a little tense. When I was having this prophetic experience, I said, Lord, who are these people? I said, I can't, I see the two groups. I see people in both groups. I don't know how to divide them. There are characteristics of this group that are the same as people in this group. What are these two groups? And the Lord spoke this to me in this prophetic experience. He said, at the beginning of the year, I told my people to stand these are those who have learned to stand. They're no better than the others. They're no wiser than the others. They're no, no more gifted than the others. But they've made a decision, I'm going to stand. This group, they're on the journey, they love me, but they are still desperately clinging with everything in them to, to walk at their own speed, their own path, to, to kneel down when they want to and rest, to lay down when it's not time to lay down. And he said, some of them don't know what to do. They're just perpetually in a squat. I want to ask you a question, loved one. Have you learned to stand? That's the division of the house. You say, Pastor, I think we ought to let Corey preach some more. It's not about education. It's not about evalu evaluation. It's about whether or not we obey what God shows us in the mountaintop and whether we are prepared to move from covetousness to covenant. You say, what do you mean from covetousness to covenant? To people that still want to live the Christian life on their own terms. To people that still could lay out on a table in front of them items that represent their compromise in their life with God. What that is about is covenant. It's not hard to build a trophy to God for bailing us out. <coughs> but it will take your absolute life to walk in covenant with God where you say, it's all yours. It's all yours. It's all yours. Not many people walk there. I want to say this. The dry season is beginning to come to an end. The season we have experienced, and, and some of you said, thank God, the dry season we've experienced in 2019 is beginning to come to an end. It's not come to an end, but it's beginning to come to an end. 
No one will be left behind. When I look back at the crowd in the prophetic vision, we had watchmen scattered all along the way. Watchmen that stayed in places uh, that required sacrifice of them to keep people moving. No one will be left behind unless they walk away. But these watchmen are saying that the shortcuts are not safe. The watchmen are saying that tests will continue. He must perfect his processes. It's not going to, it's not, you say September 1st. Oh, pastor says it's coming to an end. Everything's going to be fine. No, it's never going to be normal again. But we've had these eight, almost nine months to decide if we're going to stand or if we're going to flounder. We're still moving, but there are many who still need to learn to stand. And God is going to continue because he loves you to bring processes into your life to say, will you follow? Will you stand? So he built an altar to El, the God of Israel, at Shechem. But this action seems to get lost in the turmoil of chapter 34. The tendency is for the enemy to crowd into our lives with chaos and distraction after divine encounters, even powerful ones. Loved ones, hear me and forgive the weakness of my expression of what the Lord has put in my heart. But it's one thing to tip God. It's one thing to slip him a 50 <coughs> and say, Father, thank you for bailing me out of that problem. But are you learning to stand? Are you a different person because of the encounter? Do you walk differently than you did before because God Almighty has touched your hip? And do you answer to Jacob still? Or do you now answer to a new name? It's at this point he's calling us back to Bethel. Sit down with that thing. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I could, people are always worried. Do I interrupt it? I just wondered what it'd feel like to say, sit down and leave me alone. But actually, I needed it. Thank you. Ah, I was just on a roll, Justin. Let me give you some quick observations and then we, we've got to wrap this up because I don't want to, I don't want to go over or not by much if I can help it. Let me make some observations. Our declarations should center on what God has given and quickened to us. I think we have become, and because of the abundance of prophetic utterances and prophetic words, I think we have been quick to claim promises that God has never given to us. Now, I, I don't, I'm not like some people that say, well, that promise was given to Israel. It can never apply to anybody else. I don't believe that. I believe the Holy Spirit can do whatever he wants to do with his word. But, but I, the, I, there's this flippant attitude whenever a good word goes by. We, we've actually had people in this pulpit, not our staff, but we've actually had people that came to our church and some obscure thing passes by and they say, grab it, just grab it. Claim that one. Well, I don't know if it's for me. It don't matter. Claim it anyway. That silliness, that showmanship, it's carnality. God does not have a big box of Cracker Jacks that we can just keep reaching in and whatever prize we pull out is ours. It's a, it's a serious thing to come into the presence of God and have God Almighty speak something to your heart. You better cherish that. You better love that. 
And you better honor it and follow it. We've become like preschoolers that have a toy chest before us. You say, we, Pastor? Oh, I'm, I'm talking about second service. You can tell them, though. But this. We, 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 we have become such a covetous church that we, will, we thrive on anything that lessens our responsibility. We thrive on anything that tells us there's never any struggle to be laid ahead. You say, well, Pastor, are you saying I'm not saved? Oh, I'd never say something like that. I would never speak of the children of God the way the children of God speak of other children of God. I'd never do that. I believe you're God's child. I believe you're on your, on your way to heaven. I believe we all are, but I tell you what I also believe. I believe some of us have a lot of ground to make up because we've not learned to stand. God gave me three statements in the middle of turmoil that he gave to me, if, I believe it was late December, early January of this year, and when he began to tell me about the, the, the nature of 2019. And these are the three things he said to me. These were declarations, and I, I don't have time to elaborate how these things came and why I believe they were things the Lord gave to me. But number one, he told me that I was to declare that I hear the sound of an abundance of rain. And I understood by that that often there are indicators of blessing that are seen and heard before the answer we seek is even manifested. The second word was strange to me. The donkeys you've been seeking are found and safe. And boy, I tell you, donkeys, well, I've got all kinds of application for that. <laughs> but I knew exactly what he was saying. Saul was out looking for donkeys when he came upon this powerful prophetic encounter. And the Lord said, you've always had trouble in these areas. And he named these areas. This has always been a battle for you. It's been a struggle for you all your adult life. He said, I want you to know that's not the pursuit. Uh, that's not the target of your pursuit anymore. Those things you've been pursuing during this course of learning to stand, these donkeys will be settled and they will be corralled. You won't have to fight these battles anymore. The third thing he said is a quote from Paul in the book of Acts. I believe it shall be done for me exactly as God promised. Now, I want to tell you something, loved ones. There are three promises. I, there are no three promises more unfulfilled to me during the first half of this year. I want to tell you, some of you are turning the corner and I don't go around saying what God promised me is yours, but I'm telling you, some of you, this will bear witness to your heart. Some of you have been going through a tough place, but you've been learning to stand. And I tell you what it means. It means that what you're hearing is the sound of an abundance of rain. You say, well, that hadn't rained in a long time. Well, it hadn't rained three and a half years for Elijah. But he said, I'm beginning to hear. I'm beginning to smell. And the, the word there is, is I'm sensing. Sometimes we see, sometimes we hear, sometimes we smell. I don't know, but the abundance of rain is about to come into your life because you've learned to stand. The battles you fought and you've given up, you said, I'll never win these battles. It'll be this way the rest of my life. I want you to know those donkeys have been found and now they are corralled and it's up to you to manage those donkeys. And the third thing is whatever God has promised you, it will be done exactly as God promised. 
let me give you the Christian life lessons we're through. Number one, God's river flows toward yieldedness. Um, I, I want to read something to you out of my journey. God spoke to me one, early one morning, said, my mercy is like a surging river. The dam has burst and it flows most often into the path of the least resistance in the natural. In other words, you, you've all heard that. The reason a river meanders is that it goes the path of least resistance. It can't go through rock, so it'll go around the rock. But he said that's in the natural. In the spiritual realm, this has nothing to do with easy, for nothing is impossible with God. In the spiritual realm, the course of the river doesn't flow to a place because it's easy, but it flows to a place because there is no resistance. It is yielded to the flow of the river. And what God is saying is that he is meandering through your life. He's meandering through churches. He's meandering through the nations. He's meandering through everything that we know around us. And it's not because God is trying to find somewhere he can weave his way through. God is being drawn to humility. God is being drawn to yieldedness. God is being drawn to people that are learning to repent. God is drawn to people that say, not my will, but, my, but thy will be done. God is being drawn to ministries that withdraw the point of the finger and God is saying I'm not looking for the easiest path I'm looking for the most yielded path the path is going to change and it's going to be directed in large measure by how yielded we are to him I want to give you the second thing good uh, so God's river flows toward yieldedness so you, you say well Lord it'd be easier for you to do it that way yep it would but God can go through the rock of your life if you'll yield. Number two, good starts are usually lost without follow through. Do you realize that Jude described some believers this way? He said, they are clouds without rain and trees without fruit. Some of us are like the believers in the book of Judges where, the, you know the pattern of judges, they, they do well, then they fall into sin, and then God sends judgment upon them, they call out to God for mercy, God sends mercy, they repent, they get out of the sin, they start living right only to start sinning again. Judges is the saddest book in all the Bible because it shows the Christian life being lived just like this. Seemingly endless uh, cycles Loved ones, somewhere along the line in your life, you may just have to stand up and say, I'm living no better than they were in the days of the judges. Some place in our lives, we may need to stand up and say, I have been no more uh, promise, uh, a promise keeper than a cloud that doesn't bring rain or a tree that blossoms but does not bring forth fruit. I want you to know number three, the battle is not about our past or even about the future. It's generally a struggle about how we live today. And if we do not tap into this truth, we will spend most of our lives being crucified like Jesus between two thieves, the thief of regret concerning our past and anxiety concerning our future. 
Loved ones, right now, this beautiful thing called the Christian life, we're not making, we're not having any victory, we're not having any joy, and we're living the same patterns over and over again because we've never learned to deal with the regret for our past and fear for our future. And the reason we, get, we do that is we can't let go of control of our lives. You say, well, I've tried to do better. Loved ones, sometimes you just need a deliverance. Sometimes you need Holy Ghost, Pentecostal, white foam spitting deliverance. You just need to understand that there's something in me that is so taken hold, it, it takes the power of Almighty God to break it. We all, number four and the final thing, we all resort to the tendency to lean on the flesh, to lean on past resources. Some of you have always had a bank account that could bail you out. Some of you have always had a wife that could bail you out. Some of you have always had a job that could bail you out or a pastor that could bail you out or a church that could bail you out. And sometimes God moves you to the place where the brook dries up and the, and the ravens stop delivering food. And it's not because God has run out. It's not because God doesn't love you. It's because God wants you to learn to walk in what the true Christian faith is. Bob George talked about his way. He married a young girl from the Soviet Union. And he said that I, I thought I had made a mistake. He said, because when we first got married, every penny we had left over, she bought shoes. He said, we were on a limited income and everything left over at the end of the week, she bought shoes. And he said, until I realized what was going on, he said she lived in the hard days of the Soviet Union and she had never in her life, never once, she was in her late teens, never once had she had a pair of shoes that fit. They were always too big, they were always too little. And when she finally put on a pair of shoes that fit, he said, I didn't realize it, but she began to weep and she began to cry. And she said, this is what shoes are meant to feel like. Loved ones, I'm not doubting your relationship with God, but you spent your whole life wearing shoes that are too tight, deforming your feet. You spent your whole life wearing shoes that are too large, causing blisters. But if God can do it, he will move you to a place where there's a perfect fit. And you begin to understand what the Christian life was meant to be. <coughs> David understood this. Even when he had failed miserably, God said, I'm going to give you three choices of how I'm going to deal with you. And even David had the sense to say, Lord, you decide. It's better to be in the hands of God than the hands of men. I, I read about a king that was a, he was a wicked king. He wasn't even a good king. A king of Judah that was going to battle and he was outnumbered. He was outgunned there in 2 Chronicles 25. He got his whole army together and found out that he had 300,000 men ready to fight, but he knew it wasn't enough. So he hired 100,000 more fighting men from Israel, the northern kingdom. Verse 7, but a man of God came to him and said, Your majesty, these troops from Israel must not march with you, for the Lord is not with Israel. See, Israel was under judgment. God was doing a work in Judah, even though the king was wicked. The man of God said, don't, don't cooperate with Israel. God's hand of judgment is against them. God is working to redeem Judah. And uh, he says, don't bring them into your camp. He says, even if you go out and fight courageously in battle... 
God will still overthrow you before the enemy, for God has the power to help or overthrow. And Amaziah, the king, asked the prophet, but what about the hundred talents I paid for these Israelite troops? This would translate into millions of dollars in our currency today. He said, what about the millions of dollars I've paid for this help? The prophet of God says, oh, the Lord could give you so much more than that. Loved ones, some of you have never been able to let go of those idols in your hands thinking it costs too much, it's too much to let go of, it's too much to release. But loved ones, once and for all, let it be resounding in our heart. Whatever you are called to give up, the Lord can give you much more than that. I know today's not a day to talk about football. Pastor Corey had a great observation. I don't know, it's probably been two or three years ago, maybe longer. He was talking about the difference between the NFL and college football. He said in the NFL, it doesn't matter. Nothing matters in the NFL except that you win. All that matters is that you win because in, in the NFL, all they keep track of is wins and losses. There's no commentary on the game. You won, you lost. But in college football, it's about how you win or lose. You can win a game in college football and drop in the polls. You can lose a game. It's got to be the right conditions. You can lose a game in college football and rise in the polls. Because college football is geared this way. It's not all about winning or losing. It's about how you played that game. And I believe this with all of my heart. We've, we've adopted a Christianity that all we care about is whether we win or lose. Well, it was ugly. It was an ugly win, but it was a win. I know I shouldn't have compromised, but God got me through it. See, you've got to understand, we've got somebody cheating for us. God's, God's fighting for us. And we can't just sit back and say, well, praise God, I won. Sometimes we won in spite of ourselves, not because of ourselves. And this is what I believe the Lord has spoken to me. Preseason is over. And what you're going to be facing in the days ahead is understanding that it's not about victory because even when we are unfaithful, he remains faithful. Can I tell you this? I know how it is in my life. I've taken credit for too many victories when it wasn't because of my faithfulness, it was because of his faithfulness. And God wants us to understand it has nothing to do with our salvation, but with our reward and our quality of life, it's how we won, the way we won. And God has such an amazing thing in his kingdom that even if we lose, we still advance. Final thing. Jesus said, this is how the kingdom of God works. He said, the kingdom of God is like a man that is taking a shortcut in a walk and he's walking across the field. And as he walks in this field, he stops and he sees a box half buried and he digs the box up 
And he looks at the box, and inside the box is a treasure. Now, if we were to do that, we would kind of, you know. But he says, no, the kingdom of God, he has to do right. He goes to the owner of the field. And he says, I want to buy the field and everything in it. Pays for the field. He goes back because by the law of the land, everything in the field becomes yours when you buy the field. Loved ones, please hear me. Please hear me. Many of you have spent your lives trying to buy the treasure or steal the treasure or pick from the treasure. But this is the principle of the kingdom. In the kingdom, if you're going to get the treasure, you've got to buy the field. You've got to stop deciding who's not worthy to be on the team with you. You've got to stop deciding what I'm not willing to do. You've got to stop treating God's word like a trip to K&W cafeteria where you say, I'll take a little of that. <laughs> Don't want that. I'll take three of those. It's not a cafeteria trip. You embrace the field. You embrace the field. You embrace what you can't understand. You embrace what you don't like. You embrace what you cannot yet walk in because you know that the, the treasure that's in the field is worth it. You say, well, man, I've just, I just been so hurt by church. Yeah, that's part of the field. There are sticks and stones. There are pits and dips, and I mean that more ways than one, in the field. The question is, if you want the treasure, you've got to have the field. I tell you what God is doing. God's dividing the house in order to unite the house. Let's stop. Let's stop. Time to go. Bow your heads with me, please. Father, in Jesus' name, I'm asking you to bring us to a place of complete and full surrender to you. Lord, we want to move forward. We, we don't want to live in a divided house. We don't want to insist on being called Jacob when you've told us our name is Israel. We don't want to continue building altars of commemoration. We want to start building altars of consecration. Father, you're calling us up to a higher level. It's not about winning anymore. It's about how we win. It's about how well we win how thoroughly we win, how completely we ad adhere to the game plan. I ask you to help us in Jesus' name. Would you stand with me, please, loved ones? Now, I've gone over like seven minutes. That's not too bad considering they've not allowed me to preach for a while. It, it'll, it'll wear off. I'll be okay, I promise. You say, Pastor, what do you want me to do? You want me to just come and tell everything I've done wrong? Oh, goodness, no, not to me. Because then I'd have to tell you everything I've done wrong. I don't want to do that. But I tell you what I do believe. I believe that God is calling us to buy the field. I believe God is calling us to a place of complete consecration. You're not going to find a perfect church. You're not going to find a perfect pastor. You're not going to find a perfect denomination. But the question is, are you going to quit living it on your terms? Are you going to come on his? Because that's the only way it's designed to work. I would like to open the altars today to those that would just say, I want to, I want to close the gap, Pastor.
I don't want to be part of a divided house. I want to stand. I, I know there's areas I've got to commit to the Lord, but today I want to start by standing. This is about a turning point for me. This is about me changing the way I've been living the Christian life. If that's your desire, the altar areas are open. We're not going to embarrass you or humiliate you. We're not going to put a spotlight on you. We're not going to make you, you know, record a testimony. This is a chance for you to stand and just say, Lord, I'm coming to you full term. I'm, I'm not, no more baby steps. No more two steps forward, three steps back. No more. I'm going to stand. And in the days that are ahead, I'm going to, I'm going to be what you call me to be. And when you come to pray, I just ask you to pour out your heart to the Lord as the ministry team leads us in worship. And as you pray, then some of the pastors and the worship ministry team, ministry teams, if you'll come ahead, they're going to be in position. They're going to just begin to go to you and pray. Now, if you're coming to give your life to Jesus to become a Christian, when they come to pray for you, just say, I want to give my life to Jesus. They'll know what to do. They'll know how to help you pray. If you have a special need that you need to articulate to them, when they come to pray for you, they're just going to come and lay hands on you. Feel free to do it then. But loved ones, we're trying to close the gap. That's what we're trying to do today, close the gap. As the worship team begins to sing, I won't give you further instruction. If you want to pray, if you want to wait in his presence, just come. Just come now and fill the front, okay? God bless you. Thank you for being here. God bless you.